Drop that bowl of cereal and saddle up, Maximal Beings, because we have got some bro science to smash today. Heart-healthy grains and sugary cereals with an American Heart Association stamp of approval? Oh my. In part one of Heart Healthy Tips, we talked to Dr. Ankur Kalra about nutrition approaches in cardiovascular disease. And if you haven't done so already, go ahead and hit the subscribe button, leave us a comment so we can get the word out to the rest of you maximal beings out there. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Maximal Being a GI doc and ICU nurse that break down the science so you can exceed your gut health, nutrition, and fitness goals. So, let's smash the bro science and optimizing your health with your hosts, Doc Mock and R.N. Graham. What's going on, Maximal Beings? Doc Mock here with the Maximal Being Fitness, Nutrition, and Gut Health Podcast. On today's podcast, I'm joined by R.N. Graham down in Miami and across the way here in Cleveland a heart specialist. He's an interventional cardiologist who does things like in structural heart disease named Ankur Kalra at the Cleveland Clinic. Our topic today is heart health. Now, this is a big topic to tackle in 40 minutes, but we're going to give it a whirl. There certainly is a lot of bro science on this topic. If, you, if any of you have eaten heart-healthy grains or that Twix cereal box that has the American Heart Association label stamped on it, we want to debunk a lot of these myths and get you on the pathway to the number one killer in America, that's heart disease. As always, I'm Doc Mock. I'm the host. I'm an advanced GI doctor. That's a doctor that does fancy procedures related to cancer. I also specialize in nutrition and gut health. And joining me down in Miami is R.N. Graham. Hello, Maximal Beings. It's Aaron Graham here. I am an ICU nurse uh, here in South Florida. I uh, also was a fitness competitor. I competed with the NPC, which is National Physique Competition. I uh, also am a fitness lover and, you know, hope to educate you guys on the effects of exercise and nutrition on the heart. I'm going to go ahead and pass it to Encore. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Schaefer. Um, you know, glad to be with both of you and thank you for the kind invitation. I know we've been wanting to do this for for a while and, you know, the schedules have sort of, you know, not coalesced, but here we are. So um, happy to do this with both of you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you on. Um, so we're going to lead off the topic by uh, just introducing all of you to Dr. Kalra, and he's going to tell us kind of his origin story, how he got to be a structural heart interventional doctor. So back to you, Dr. Kalra. Uh, well, Schaefer, so Schaefer and I, you know, just for the audience, we go back a long way. <laughs> I've known uh, Schaefer uh, for now, actually a little over 10 years, uh, so 11 years. Um, I came to the U.S. from India, from New Delhi in India. Um, and my, my landing ground was New Jersey, and that's where I met Schaefer. Um, he actually came the year following to the same program where I was doing my internal medicine residency. Um, I had done a residency back home in India at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences and um, sort of wanted to do cardiology, and you know, the only path forward for cardiology would be to repeat the internal medicine training, get board certified in internal medicine in the U.S. before... Uh, being even eligible for applying for cardiovascular disease fellowships. So that's that's when I met Schaefer, so in 2010. Now it's 2020, so 10 years. Uh, we've sort of stayed in touch since then. But, you know, Schaefer, to 
get, getting back to answer your question. Um, so after internal medicine, we, we both were at Cooper, Cooper University Hospital. Um, at the time, it was Robert Wood Johnson. Now they have their own medical school, um, the Cooper Medical School of Rowan. But, you know, when we graduated, you know, at least when I graduated, it was still Robert Wood Johnson. I moved to Minneapolis um, to do my cardiovascular disease fellowship training at uh, Hennepin County Medical Center and Minneapolis Heart Institute at Abbott Northwestern Hospital, both in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, from then, uh, or from there, um, went to Boston, uh, to Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. That's where I did my interventional cardiology fellowship. Also spent a year doing um, a program in safety, quality, informatics, and leadership from Harvard Medical School, um, and then moved to Houston. Um, so I sort of, from New Jersey to Minneapolis to Boston to Houston. Um, and at Houston Methodist, uh, DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center is where I did my structural heart training. And that is to, uh, to learn techniques to replacing valves using catheters and wires. So extremely minimally invasive. Uh, and then sort of came to Cleveland. My first job was where Schaefer is now at University Hospitals. And then about a year in, I had an opportunity with the Cleveland Clinic Health System. So I'm now with the Cleveland Clinic. So sort of that's been my sojourn. Um, in the U.S. and, you know, what I've been up to over the past a little over 10 years, 11 years, I would say. Yeah. So he may not look at folks, but he's actually uh, 87 years old with all that training. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, uh, it, he, I definitely admire your dedication, you know, on the pathway forward. We, I think we're all in that same boat that we've persevered through, you know, years and years of training to get where we want to be to bring you this wonderful content today. So leading off the topic, I think we'll talk about nutrition, which is kind of a big topic, but specifically, you know, one of the main cardiovascular um, risk factors is high high blood pressure. The impact of high blood pressure on your body, you can think of it, your body is trying to pump against a, a narrower tube. And often this, this tube is narrower either from constriction, meaning the blood vessels ha have narrowed due to contraction. Um, it's more vasospastic, meaning it's more reactive to certain things that you may eat or things in the environment, or you may develop uh, plaques within those arteries over time. Actually, if you look at you know, some of the path reports of babies, you'll find early atherosclerotic plaques inside of babies, even before they, you know, start eating those heart healthy grains. Um, and so no doubt all of us have some degree of plaques within our arteries and our blood, our heart has to work harder to pump blood through the rest of our body to get oxygen to our tissues. And when that process gets more difficult, the, our blood pressures will rise therefore leading to high blood pressure. So uh, RN Graham, who are the people at highest risk for high blood pressure here in America? Well, in the United States of America, um, actually around, around the world, really, um, you have those that are stationary, those who don't exercise. Um, you have those who smoke, which is a large group. Um, you also have the African-American community and other ethnic communities. Um, that are also at risk, but more so the African-American community. Those who don't exercise, uh, those with high cholesterol. Um, and there's also di diabetics and older diabetics, people. Older people go. in particular probably have the, one of the highest risks. Correct. And, and why do we even care about 
blood pressure? I mean, we know it's a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, but you know, what impact does lowering blood pressure have on cardiovascular disease? Uh, Ankur, what, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, so, you know, this has been a topic of um, sort of, I should, shouldn't really say debate. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, we, we've sort of known from the Framingham um, group um, and, and all the studies, uh, the epidemiological observational studies that they have published over the years now, that hypertension or high blood pressure remains one of the most important, like you mentioned, Schaefer, one of the most important modifiable, I should say, cardiovascular disease risk factors. Uh, it's important to stress on the word vascular also, because, you know, when we talk about target organ damage, you know, for the, for the lay audience, uh, target, target organ damage refers to all the end organs that get affected if blood pressure is too high. You know, we're talking about the kidneys, we're talking about the, the brain, we're talking about the heart, obviously. But, you know, I think we're also talking about the, the, the vasculature in general. Um, so there is, uh, there is stiffening, there is arterial stiffening in all the peripheral arteries um, associated with, with high blood pressure, and they, they sort of lose their biphasic response, if you will. So there is a systolic response. So the upper number of the blood pressure is the, is the systolic number. The lower number of the blood pressure, or the, the second number of the blood pressure, is the, is the diastolic number. <clears throat> and then there is sort of like a healthy biphasic response to arterial stiffness. And as one ages, you sort of, um, with, and with, un, with, with uncontrolled blood pressure, you sort of tend to lose that biphasic response, um, which is uh, a sign of aging um, and is a, is a sign of arterial stiffening. So, you know, many, many a times you would see that in elderly, for example, you know, in hospital wards, even in, in an ICU setting, even in an ambulatory setting, you would see that the, the diastolic number is sort of really, really low. Um, and the systolic number is sort of, either normal or high, you know, some people call it isolated systolic hypertension, uh, you know, but, but a lot of times it's not a manifestation of isolated systolic hypertension. It actually is arterial stiffening leading to you not getting accurate measurement of that lower number on the sphygma manometer, you know, which uh, is a sign of arterial stiffness and aging. Uh, but uh, to sort of, uh, you know, finish the point on target organ damage. So you can have kidney disease, you can have chronic kidney disease, with uncontrolled blood pressure leading to dialysis, requiring kidney transplant. Um, so dialysis is sort of a bridge therapy. So if you don't get transplanted, you know, survival in patients with dialysis, you and I know the shape from our internal medicine training is, is roughly about five years. Um, so there is a push to transplanting those patients. You know, you, you don't sort of recommend long-term dialysis on these patients. Uh, similarly, actually, hypertension is the number one factor, the number one modifier, even, even more than coronary disease. So, you know, if someone were to ask me, you know, why even care about blood pressure? Uh, uncontrolled blood pressure is the number one cause for strokes in the U.S., uh, you know, or, or worldwide for that matter, is the number one cause for, for strokes. So it's extremely important, more, more than heart disease, you know, more than kidney disease. So, so it's extremely important to, to control blood pressure to prevent strokes. And, you know, strokes, you and I know, are very disabling. You know, they're disabling, uh, they're quality of life limiting. There's also an economic impact. Um, so it's ex extremely important to, to, to sort of mitigate that risk, you know, for the general population. And then obviously, you know, heart disease. So, um, you know, heart disease comes in all rubric, you know, with uncontrolled blood pressure. It could be uh, again, disease affecting the kidneys, which is then affecting the heart, could be thickening of the heart muscle causing 
diastolic dysfunction, you know, in terms of medical terms, and that can cause heart failure. So, you know, people um, are sort of married to pumping function or ejection fraction, and that's a, that's a really important metric in cardiology, as, as you know, Schaefer. But, um, you know, 50% of our heart failure is actually not those people who have low EFs or low pumping function is, is actually people with preserved ejection fraction or preserved pumping function. And that heart failure is a manifestation of heart muscle thickening or sort of diastolic dysfunction. Uh, there are other causes also like amyloid and, and, and other restrictive forms of heart disease, but you know, hypertension is one of the most common risk factors. So that can, that actually, you know, till date, we actually have no therapy for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And, you know, the outcome or the, the, the clinical outcomes or, or mortality from heart failure with preserved ejection fraction are sort of very similar to heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, where you actually have a lot of therapies, you know, you and I know beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, you know, now you also have SGLT2 inhibitors um, to add to the armamentarium, but you have no therapy whatsoever, you know, even after decades of research, zero therapy that has shown to be of any mortality benefit in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Now, that is a manifestation, it, you know, in the vast majority remains uh, a very common manifestation of uncontrolled blood pressure. Atrial fibrillation is, is another important entity in, in cardiology. Now we're getting into rhythm issues, but if you have AFib or atrial fibrillation that can occur as a result of uncontrolled hypertension leading to thickening of the heart muscle, then leading to dilation of the upper chambers, then causing atrial fibrillation. I was saying so was it, atrial fibrillation is an independent stroke risk uh, because you know you can form clots in the upper chamber that can then migrate to the the brain causing a very disabling stroke and then you know even for for people on atrial fibrillation uh, are put on lifelong blood thinners you know which you know come with their own sets of problems so you know i'm 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 hoping that with what i've just just said um you know i think is motivation enough for people to keep a close watch on their blood pressure. Yeah. And, and for the audience out there, for every 10 points that you're able to drop your blood pressure, you're able to mitigate your risk of stroke by about 27%. And that is significant when we're talking neurologic tissue. Um, also for, uh, Heart failure, as uh, Encore was stating, you know, 28%, you can reduce your risk of heart failure by lowering your blood pressure 10 points. And for uh, heart disease in general, about 17%. And that's from a study out of the Lancet from 2015. You know, RN Graham, when, when we're talking blood pressure, my brain nutritionally just goes to one particular spot and it's salt. Is that where your brain goes when we're talking about like uh, dietary things that we can do to improve our blood pressure? Well, you, so salt, yes, um, but there are other other factors involved. Um, you know, high cholesterol, for example, is a big cause of uh, hypertension, and with that, we're looking more at animal fats. So, yes, salt does play a, a big, big deal, but there's many components to it. Um, Going back to animal fats, so what we're doing with uh, hyperlipidemia is we are clogging our arteries. Clogging of the arteries, the heart has to work, you know, more um, to push uh, blood through those arteries. Um, so when it comes to uh, diet-wise, um, opposite from salt, we do have the the fat component of it. So. What's going on, Maximal Beings? It's Doc Mock here. 
Many of you are returning to the gym now, but some are not going back. Regardless of what you plan, Rogue has got the right gear to fit your needs. I personally own a barbell set and love it. The black op shorts are sweat resistant and flexible for getting deep in your squats. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com Rogue for our referral link. Order three items and they ship for free. And as usual, it's Doc Mock, and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness. Are you tired of not being able to pronounce what your protein bar is made of? Is your snack a candy bar in disguise loaded with sugar? Well, I have a solution for you, Maximal Beings. RX bars are the no-nonsense, delicious option for on-the-go macro maximization. I love the pumpkin spice option available for a limited time only. As one of our listeners, you get wholesale prices and orders of $50 ship for free. Send us an email at team at maximalbean.com for more information. I, when it comes to me, I think more of the animal fats more than the salt when it comes to uh, hypertension. Yeah, I, I know that my conventional training when we were uh, going through re- residency um, was you know, low sodium diet is the key to improving uh, hypertension. And, uh, you know, we were taught to, to tell people to watch what comes out of the salt shaker. But, um, you know, this has actually been kind of a fluctuating area of nutritional research with uh, hypertension. When, when we were finishing training, actually, the whole concept of, of, of low sodium was kind of going out of vogue. And now it appears like it's back. Um, and, you know, what's kind of stood the test of time is a particular diet called the DASH diet. Um, Ankur, you want to break down what, what the DASH diet is? Uh, R.N. Graham alluded to definitely the, the change in um, fat content in your diet. That is definitely part of it. What are the other key components to the DASH diet? Um, sure. So, um, y- you know, I think the, the area of salt intake in nutritional research is sort of been like a yin and yang, you know, and it's, it's sort of been tough to follow. Uh, you know, also it sort of extrapolates to the heart failure literature when, you know, there are studies out there which actually have shown that, you know, restricting salt and restricting water uh, may not actually be the cornerstone of therapy for, you know, from a, from a nutritional standpoint for patients with heart failure with, you know, any kind of heart failure, you know, it could be heart failure with, with reduced ejection fraction or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But, you know, coming back to DASH diet, so DASH stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. You know, it's simple. Uh, and, um, you know, Graham uh, alluded to a very important component of, uh, of that, that diet, which is limiting, uh, you know, uh, animal fat intake, you know, also limiting animal protein intake. Uh, there was a recent study, I believe, was published. Uh, you know, don't quote me on this. One of the JAMA journals, I think most, uh, I think JAMA, JAMA Internal Medicine or you know, one of the JAMA journals, which basically looked at, um, you know, sources of protein. So they looked at vegetable protein, they looked at animal protein, and they actually showed that vegetable protein um, compared with animal protein had, had significant health benefits. Um, and, you know, sort of that is what is recommended as, as part of the DASH diet. So a diet which, and this is very, very, very close to what the American Heart Association also recommends, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, so dietary approaches to either mitigating cardiovascular disease or, um, you know, a cardiovascular healthy diet, if you will, uh, which is a diet which is rich in fruits and vegetables. So, you know, at least, 
you know, three to five servings of, of fruits and maybe five to seven servings of vegetables each day. And, you know, that, that sort of gets, I mean, that's that, you know, even to me as someone who sort of, you know, always thinks before I put things into my mouth is like, okay, what is the glycemic index? Is there fruit in here? Um, you know, are there quote unquote whole grains? Um, or is this, um, you know, is this, is this not processed? Uh, you know, now each of these terms have science and literature behind them, you know, so it's important to not consume processed foods, you know, so processed foods like delight, you know, deli meats or, uh, you know, which, which tend to be rich in salt and are, and are processed. Uh, even canned foods uh, tend to be extremely rich in, in salt and are stored and processed are not fresh. Um, uh, even canned, you know, canned fruits uh, have very high sugar content. So, uh, you know, um, when you are out there grocery shopping, it's extremely important to read the labels. You know, labels are sort of mandated nowadays in, uh, in, in every product that you pick from the shelf and, and from the grocery stores. And um, some of the key components to look uh, on the labels are, you know, how much sugar content is there in each of the foods and what percentage is actually added sugar. So, cause you know, some of the fruits will have natural sugars and, and, and that's fine. Uh, but if there's a lot of added sugar, that, that's an issue because that's a direct source of carbohydrate and that translates into, that directly actually has, a, has an effect on, on cardiovascular disease risk and, and burden. And, you know, by that, I mean, you know, atherosclerotic vascular disease in the blood vessels that run on the surface of the heart, even other vascular beds. So be extremely mindful of the sugar content. So when, whenever, you, whenever you hear or think processed foods, think about salt, think about sugar, think about you know, excess oils uh, and fats. Because you know, the, these are sort of the ingredients which are used or utilized to increase shelf life of foods. So it's extremely important to, to, to purchase or to, to, to consume fresh produce, which is you know, not, not processed. Uh, so one of the key cornerstones for nutrition uh, to prevent, uh, you know, high blood pressure, also to prevent cardiovascular disease in general. So, um, so back to my point of, you know, like it could be intimidating to have three servings of fruit a day, you know, five servings of vegetables a day. So good, good rule of rule of thumb is whenever you're having a meal, you know, make sure you have at least five to seven different colors. You know, that's what I go by. So you have five to seven different colors in a, in a plate. Uh, you know, you'll be rest assured that there will be adequate fruits and adequate vegetables, uh, you know, for you to consume. Um, so that's, that's a good rule. That's a good practical applicable rule to go by for everyone. That's what I use personally for my, you know, for my day-to-day -day eating habits. Um, I think nut, nut consumption is, is also extremely, uh, you know, important. Uh, you know, nuts are a good source of vegetable oils and a, and a really, really good source of vegetable fat. Um, you know, they've got some of the essential fats, which are important from a nutritional standpoint. They're, they're dense calorifically. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's something which I always keep in my pocket between cases in the cat lab, you know, when <laughs> I'm sort of toggling between labs and doing long cases, uh, you know, nuts are what keep me going. So nuts is a good, is a good source. You know, <clears throat> uh, one of the really uh, popular studies, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine now, I think almost seven years ago, the PREDIMED study uh, actually looked at uh, now, this is not uh, a Predimed study didn't necessarily look at a vegetarian diet. I mean, it looked at a Mediterranean diet. So, uh, you know, there was extra virgin olive oil. There were, there were nuts. So, you know, almonds, hazelnuts, walnuts, what have you. 
and then you know some obviously animal sources of protein and then they looked at the at the standard diet and what they showed was that the the folks on the predimet diet um you know had had significant health benefits compared with uh, you know just a traditional uh, diet which was i think fairly rich in animal protein so the mediterranean diet is not not a vegetarian diet uh, it does have some animal protein in it um but you know still there's a good balance of legumes and nuts and extra virgin olive oil um and um you know whole grains um so basically food which is not processed food which is which has a short shelf life because it is just fresh produce um so you know think about those things uh, now and, and as as far as animal protein or animal fat I, i you know what i what i tell my patients actually is um um uh, that you know try and completely take red meat out of the equation so and that's sort of a hard sell in in midwest in in ohio shafer you and i know that <laughs> yep <laughs> uh, but you know at least um you know sort of plant the seed in their in their brains and sort of make them think in that direction that uh, you know if you can mitigate red meat you know totally then that's that's ideal if you can't then at least limit it to maybe one meal of red meat a week uh, is a good starting point <clears throat> so that that has been shown to have effects on you know high blood pressure also affects on cardiovascular disease and, and mortality um and then what i tell them is you know one fatty fish meal a week is is good you know poultry in moderation you know so so the the first recommendation really is try and minimize animal protein intake to the best that you can now if you can't then you know go to uh, for example fish now now some people are pescatarian they don't even consider fish as non-vegetarian or animal source of protein and that's fine um so fish is generally cardiovascularly healthy um you know and then you could also do uh you know poultry or chicken um or you know turkey if you will uh pork is the other white meat as they as they call it is not really classified as as a red meat but i i would tend to tell patients to limit you know for example you you get into pork and you sort of get into all the uh delicacies that are associated with pork and almost all of them are deep fried so that actually adds it sort of quadruples the the cardiovascular risk because not only it's animal protein now it's deep fried so it's it's like double whammy uh and you, you and I know i mean american diet is rich in that is is very rich in that particularly for breakfast you know and that's that's what you get for breakfast yeah uh, um and then uh you know so and, and then the last thing that i want to touch upon and we can talk about each of these elements separately uh, obviously but the last thing that i want to touch upon is dairy so dairy and eggs so dairy and eggs have had you know again a yin and a yang uh, you know just like salt um but i think if you can if you can limit dairy and eggs uh i mean i eat eggs uh, you know almost every day but i just limit it to maybe one or two you know whole eggs every, every day um and then i i love dairy i'm a dairy person but i sort of would limit it and you know you are a gi person you would tell me uncle you're you're stupid you know you don't know that as you as you age you sort of lose the enzyme that digests milk so you're going to be lactose intolerant uh, uh, and you know maybe i am <laughs> maybe, maybe that maybe you'll, that's you'll figure it out <laughs> yeah. 
everybody in the room will figure it out yeah <laughs> not subtle i guess it's not subtle mm-hmm. yeah but what i was saying with dairy was that dairy again in moderation i think it's you know yogurt with uh, with active cultures is good for the gut i mean you probably know that more you know more about it than i do uh, so you know i usually go with at least a serving of yogurt a day a glass of milk a day um so those are those typically are you know good eating healthy habits you know for mitigating high blood pressure mitigating cardiovascular disease you know i know i touched upon a lot of dietary patterns and habits but i'm going to take a pause here and let you and graham ask questions or maybe carry the conversation forward so so i have something to say regarding that um so you touched the base on the fact that you know processed foods a lot of people will go, they, they buy canned food. This is a regular, you know, I, I'm not a canned food person. I, I didn't grow up a canned food person, but it is part of the American culture to go to the store, grab some canned foods and, you know, have them stocked up so that you can just pop open that can, pour it in the pot, warm it up real quick, and you're good to go. Um, but that can of soup is, you know, 800 milligrams of sodium in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, those can of beans is another 800 milligrams. And with the DASH diet, I believe it's um, 1,600 or somewhere around that, the amount, of, um, the amount of sodium you can have in a day. Yeah. So can you give us some options on what to do regarding that? Um, like, what are options for the average person that's going to go get that can? Um, what would you recommend? Would, would you recommend just, you know, is it better to go and get corn and freeze it or, you know, make your own soups? What do you recommend and how, how do you help people keep that sodium level down, but still have the ease of making those quick meals? Absolutely. So, you know, that is, a, that is actually an important question, you know, cause it sort of gets into the uh, practicalities of implementation, you know, which is, I mean, you can put as many recommendations out there as you want to, uh, but if people find it hard to follow, then they're not going to follow it. You know, end of discussion. Um, so I'm, so thank you for bringing that up. I think it's, it's extremely important, um, to sort of be mindful of the ingredients and, you know, what is it in that can that you really want to, to consume? Um, you know, I, I know, um, you know, I don't do a lot of canned soups at all. You know, whenever we, uh, you know, we want to have a soup is something we, you know, cook, uh, you know, fresh at our, at our home. So, you know, like you said, you know, get, you can get frozen vegetables, um, so you can get, get frozen vegetables and, and store them, um, whether it's corn or whether it's peas or, you know, whether it's carrots, um, you know, celery, what have you, and then sort of, you know, make your soup at home, you know, with, with these, with these frozen veggies, uh, you can add chicken, uh, but, you know, uh, make, make soup at home. You know, I, I think if you can dial it down to, looking at what ingredients do you really want in your soup and sort of getting them either, either fresh, fresh produce or, you know, even frozen, you know, some people, you know, can't buy fresh produce and I, I, I respect that limitation. Um, but, you know, getting frozen food, uh, you know, frozen raw vegetables and then storing them in the refrigerator. And then when it's time, you know, just a good thaw and uh, just cooking the meal at home is, is a lot more healthy, um, is a lot more cardiovascularly friendly compared with, you know, walking to a grocery store and getting yourself a can. I have a question for you, Schaefer. Um, so with the DASH diet, you know, we did talk about the, limit, the limitation of sodium in that diet. 
Um, but are there other things that we should be taking since we're limiting that sodium? Is there things that we need to be doing to make sure that, you know, it doesn't mess with us in other ways? Because I know that the intake of salt is important because it's a, it's a very important electrolyte. And with limitations in this, it will toss off some of the other electrolytes in the body. So is there things that we need to monitor when it comes to this? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it depends on your goals, right? If, you're, if you do have a, a volume overload state like cirrhosis and you retain water on your belly or congestive heart failure and, you know, your sodium intake and tracking numbers really is important. Also tracking your weight. You know, a lot of our, our vacillations in our weight from day to day are not due to actual loss of fat. They are due to loss and changes in our electrolyte balance. You may have eaten more salt or gone out to dinner and notice that you weigh five pounds more the next day. It's not that you gain fat. It's really that probably the salt meal. And you probably will lose that if you have a low salt uh, or a normal salt meal the following day. Um, Glycogen is also part of that, as we've discussed previously. Um, I would I would say, you know, as sodium has vacillated so much in the literature over the past few years that probably the other components of the diet are more important, you know, despite the fact that sodium has kind of come and gone and was so ingrained in us as trainees. You know, I think probably the most important thing is that the eating real food concept, like we talked about, right? That uh, we talked about processed foods on the other hand, but just if you need, if you have a degree in biochemistry, require a degree in biochemistry to pronounce what you're about to eat, you probably should not eat that thing. But if it's carrots, eat carrots. Um, so I think, you know, general, as a general concept, uh, getting from processed stuff to eating real food is probably the first step. Um, and then increasing the amount of produce that you have, the, the amount of vegetables that you have. I think that that's probably most important. Uh, some of the other tricks that, that I also add into the conversation are shopping on the periphery of the store instead of going down the aisles. Um, the aisles tends to be where a lot of the canned and, and processed things live. And then, um, you know, you can do frozen frozen foods. I mean, frozen vegetables are probably better than a lot of the produce that exists out there because they're frozen at their maximal um, freshness level. So right when they're harvested, they're, they're flash frozen. So they probably have really good nutritional value. Um, so I, I think that those parts eating are like a real food is important. And then the nitty gritty comes with balancing fats and proteins. I think that's where it gets really hard. Um, we talked about, you know, the source of protein. Um, and, and yes, like red meat is, is a bad part of it, but red meat does have some benefit and not all red meats are created equal, right? There's red meat that is pasture raised and has eaten things that it was supposed to eat. And there is the typical red meat that's been uh, fed corn and grains that are filled with chemicals. And those, those cows are, are not healthy and eating those cows is not healthy for you either. Um, so I think it also depends on what type of meats you're eating and what type of fish you're eating. A lot of the, the benefit for your heart of fish goes away when you have farm raised fish, right? You need wild caught fish. Wild caught fish are the only type of fish that contain omega-3 fatty acids. That, that's what gains you that, that anti-inflammatory effect. You know, there was this guy, Ansel Keys. I don't know if you're familiar with Ansel Keys, either of you guys, but he's the guy that led us to where we are in America, in my opinion, with all this misinformation around heart health. 
he basically demonized fat. He did a retrospective analysis, which gained popularity, and he was a bully, and he bullied all of the people that argued against him, and they wouldn't stand up to him. And for years, up until when he died, that's where we were left with the fat fat in equals fat in your arteries equation, which we know from, from the Mediterranean diet data that that is just not true. It's so much more complicated than that. Um, so Ansel Keys aside, the one uh, elephant in the room we didn't talk about is breakfast cereals and heart-healthy <laughs> grains. Next week on the Maximal Being Podcast. Exercise has been found to strengthen your cardiovascular system. It can increase your good cholesterol. That's your HDL Do us a favor, Maximal Beings, and leave us a comment or review. Hit the subscribe button. Let your friends and family know so that we can get the word out. And until next time, this is Doc Mock, and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness. Wellness.